The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. We'll be giving attention this morning to verses 1 through 10 of Luke 15. You've probably never heard of Jesse Stevens. He was a 77-year-old man, a little older than that now, from East Texas. I ran across a news story a number of years ago about him that absolutely captured my attention. A 77-year-old man, Mr. Stevens, took a wrong turn one night when he was driving home from an old friend's funeral in his SUV. It was a Saturday night, and he had attended the funeral, uh, grieving the loss of his dear friend. He made a wrong turn and ended up turning on a dead-end street. He thought he he was on a service road, but again, it was a wrong turn, and he ended up confused and at the end of a dark, dead-end street. Before he knew it, his his SUV had sort of veered off the road into a very wooded area, and he became very confused about where he was. He stepped out of his vehicle to sort of gain his bearings and to try to get a sense for where he was, and as he sort of walked around in the dark, he stumbled and he tripped and he fell. It was a very heavily wooded area, And the area into which he fell was full of thick brush and all sorts of tall grass. And Jesse tried to get up, and he tried to find his way back to his SUV when he fell down again. And this scene played out multiple times, him mustering the energy to get back up, only to fall back down again and again. And every time he attempted to get up, he used all of his strength, and he fell back down. After a while, he had no more strength left, and he could no longer get himself up. So there was nothing for him to do but to lie there in the woods. He stayed there overnight. The next morning when he awoke, everything looked completely different in the daylight. He had absolutely no idea where he was. He was actually only about 150 feet from his SUV, but because of the thick brush and the wooded area, he couldn't see his vehicle. He might as well have been 100 miles away. But at this point, he was exhausted and injured, and he lied there in the middle of this 20 acres or so of thick forest from Saturday night, all day Sunday, all day Monday, all day Tuesday, and Wednesday. Jesse said this, quote, Every day I screamed, hoping somebody would hear me. But then he lost his voice. He said, quote, I thought that maybe I'll just lay here and die, and that's the way it's supposed to be. But something happened along the way. Early on Sunday morning, it rained for the first time in months at that portion of East Texas, and Jesse was able to to capture some rainwater in his mouth, and he survived miraculously, really, the next few days just on that rainwater. 
And for those four days when he's lying in the woods, he could hear all the cars rolling by on Interstate 20, but nobody could hear him. There he was in the middle of the woods, still with his shiny dress shoes and his black slacks that he had worn to his friend's funeral. Finally, on Wednesday, two bicyclists in the area saw his abandoned SUV and reported it to the police. The police ran the tags on the SUV, and they realized that it belonged to Jesse Stevens, who had been reported missing. An officer with the last name of Daughtery was one of the first ones to show up on the scene, and he started scouring the woods on foot, just with hope beyond hope that he might be able to locate uh, Mr. Stevens. About an eighth of a mile into the woods, Mr. Uh, officer Daughtery saw a small metal shack and he saw a body lying next to the shack. Really, it wasn't moving. He had very little hope of finding anything good. But he ran toward Jesse Stevens. And Officer Daughtery remembered the old man's first words. Boy, am I glad to see you. Although he was hungry and he was dehydrated. Otherwise, 77-year-old Jesse Stevens was okay. In short order, the police and four paramedics who arrived were able to carry him to the hospital where he was able to make a full recovery. It's really a miraculous story, isn't it? It's a frightening story if you can imagine being in his position. It's a wonderful story if you can imagine his family somebody near and dear to them who was lost, lost beyond hope really after four days, but was miraculously found and made whole. It's a good feel story. But I share it with you today because it struck me that the condition that that man found himself in, in the middle of the woods for those four days, in a physical sense, is in a very real sense spiritually a clear description of how every human being comes into this world dying and hopeless completely unable to rescue and save ourselves our only hope being that somebody would come and find us in our desperate condition and save us the bible says that all of us come into this world as sinners who have rebelled against our savior and that the wages of our sin is eternal death. But there's no amount of good works and there's no amount of religious activity that we can do to balance the scales, to overcome our sin debt, to save ourselves. Our only hope is that God would be gracious and do something for us that we cannot do, that he would rescue us, that he would save us. Of course, as we've been walking through Luke's gospel, we've been hearing through the words of God himself in human flesh, Jesus saying, I am the one who's come to do that very thing. That is the work to which I'm called. It's why I left heaven. It's why I was born in human flesh. To save those who can't save themselves. And it's back to that very message that Luke takes us in Luke chapter 15. Jesus has been preaching and he's been teaching over and over in various ways the truths of the good news that he is the Messiah who's come to save. 
And when we pick up the story in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 15, here's what Luke tells us. He says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Now it's a fascinating thing to hear. Jesus has just finished saying some things that were very hard to swallow. If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Kelly sort of walk through in detail the things that he was teaching on this occasion. He was saying things like, anyone who doesn't hate their mother and father cannot be my disciple. Does it get harder to swallow than that? He was saying things like, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You want to follow me, you have to hate your mother and father and you have to renounce everything that you have. Talk about setting the bar high. And he ended that message with this, something that he used quite frequently. He said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now you would think that that kind of a message would be an absolute turnoff to lost sinners, wouldn't you? I mean, can you imagine people who are just far from God showing up and hearing the preacher preach that message? You want to you want to be right with God? You want to follow God? Where you have to renounce everything you have and hate your father and mother? You would think that immediately their response would be, "Yeah, I'm out. I'm out. No way." After all, today in our culture, particularly in our Christian culture, we're, t- we're told, really, we just, when it comes to, to lost sinners who are far from God, we really have to massage the gospel message. We, we really just have to sort of ease them in with the easy stuff and focus on the happy and focus on the good and set the bar really low. And maybe one day down the road, talk about things like the cost of following Christ. But no way do you come in and lead with the things that Jesus was leading with on this day. We're told that if you do that, you'll turn them off. You'll turn people off. Well, remarkably, on this particular occasion, here's what Luke tells us, that after Jesus finished preaching that message, and after he said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what it is that I'm saying, here's what we're told. Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near, all drawing near, to hear him. That's fascinating, isn't it? The ones who had ears to hear and who wanted to hear were the tax collectors and the sinners. They were the ones that had drawn near in response to this message, and they wanted to hear more. There was something about Jesus' words, and there was something about the way that he engaged them that was attractive to them. He didn't speak to them like the religious leaders they were used to. He didn't treat them with disdain like the religious leaders they were used to. In his presence, they felt welcomed, and they felt wanted. And they were drawn to him. That was something that they were absolutely not used to from religious people. It was something that they were absolutely drawn to him because of. Who are these people? these tax collectors and sinners. Well, we've encountered some of them along the way already in Luke's gospel. 
But just as a reminder, if you haven't been here, the tax collectors were Jewish citizens, primarily men, who had been hired by the Romans to collect taxes on behalf of Rome, and they were well known for extorting people out of their money and collecting more taxes than were actually due, so that they would then pay Rome what was due, and they would pocket whatever they could collect in excess. So you can imagine how much people really loved the tax collectors. They were social and spiritual outcasts. People despised them, considered them traitors, extorting their own people out of money for their own benefit. And this word sinners here is a word that's really just sort of a broad term that describes just the, the, the portion of the citizenry who were sort of renowned for their ungodliness in all sorts of ways. It was an umbrella term that sort of included all sorts of riffraff sort of folks in the culture. You know, drunks and prostitutes and robbers and thieves and liars. Those kind of folks were the sinners. The kind of people who ignored all the religious rules and lived in open sin. Tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus says, after this message, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the ones who had ears to let him hear were these very people. And these are the people that the religious leaders of Israel would have never been caught dead anywhere near. Never. They despised this group of people. In fact, they hated them. They would have nothing to do with them whatsoever. And yet these men and women were drawn to Jesus. William Barclay in his commentary gives us a sense for their, the religious leaders' attitudes toward these people. They called them, Barclay writes, the people of the land. And there was a complete barrier between the Pharisees and the people of the land. The Pharisaic regulations laid it down. When a man is one of the people of the land, entrust no money to him. Take no testimony from him. Trust him with no secret. Do not appoint him guardian of an orphan. Do not make him the custodian of a charitable fund. Do not accompany him on a journey. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. A Pharisee was forbidden to be the guest of any such man or to have him as a guest. He was even forbidden so far as it was possible to have any business dealings with him. It was, Barclay writes, the deliberate Pharisaic aim to avoid every contact with the people who did not observe the petty details of the law. Sinners and tax collectors would have found no welcomed audience with any religious leader in that day. They wouldn't go anywhere near them for fear that just being in proximity of such people, they would be contaminated by their sin, like it was a coronavirus or something. But Jesus welcomed them. Jesus welcomed such people. He, he engaged them in such a way that they felt wanted and they felt welcomed and they felt like they could hear what he had to say and they felt like they could engage him in conversation and find a, an audience that was interested in them. And again, this becomes a major point of contention between Jesus and these religious leaders all throughout his ministry. They are beside, him, beside themselves with just irritation and disdain. They're completely appalled that Jesus would associate with this kind of individual, much less any one of them, much less a whole group of them. In their minds, nobody that was from God would do something like that. This was proof positive that he was from Satan. Had to be. 
And we're told in verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners, and he eats with them. I mean, no self-respecting rabbi would be caught dead with these people, and here's Jesus receiving them, and he's eating with them, and they're grumbling, and they're murmuring, and they're indignant at what he's doing. To receive sinners means to welcome them warmly. That's what the word means. And that's the accusation, that Jesus is welcoming warmly these sinners, these notorious sinners. He's welcoming them. He's not turning them away. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't throw their sins in their face. Instead, he, he welcomes them, and he engages them. Not only that, he sits at the table, and he eats with them. To sit at the table and eat with somebody took fellowship to a whole different level. It was to, it was to establish a relational relationship with somebody that was almost like that of family. It was a visible sign of fellowship and a visible sign of identification. And the religious leaders would have seen Jesus doing this, sitting down at a table with these kinds of folks and sharing a meal. They would have seen this as condoning their sin. They would have looked at Jesus as though he wasn't taking holiness very seriously, like he's gone soft on sin associating with these people. The fact that Jesus, Jesus would, would choose to dine with this kind of a crowd rather than them, it was both infuriating and it was insulting. And they were about to come unglued. As far as the Pharisees and the scribes were concerned, the tax collectors and the sinners, those folks could go to hell, literally. That is what they wanted for them. They had no compassion for them. They had no desire to see them redeemed. They offered them no kindness. They offered them only condemnation. And just like Jonah in the Old Testament, they had the same attitude. You remember Jonah in the Old Testament? God says, go to Nineveh and preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah, in his mind, says, absolutely no way. Gets on a ship and heads in the other direction. He does that because he hates the Ninevites. He doesn't want them to hear a message from God because he knows there's a chance if they hear it, they'll be saved and God will have mercy on him. And the last thing Jonah wants is for God to be merciful to the Ninevites. He wants God to rain justice on them and destroy them because he believes that's what they deserve. And he would have joyfully watched God do that. And that is the attitude of these religious leaders toward the, the, the tax collectors and the sinners. It's the same attitude. And it's because of this attitude that Jesus tells three stories in chapter 15. And each one of these stories vividly illustrates God's love for lost sinners, his desire to, to relentlessly pursue them, his willingness to do everything to save them, and his great joy in their salvation. All three of the stories that Jesus tells, parables if you will, all illustrate those same four issues in different ways. But before we dig into the nuts and bolts of those stories, I think it is good for us to pause for a minute, isn't it? Just for a moment of self-reflection and self-examination. And to stop for a moment and just to sort of pull our, our heads above the, the busyness of life and the religious activity that we're engaged in this morning and ask ourselves a very simple question. What is my attitude toward lost sinners? What is my attitude toward lost people? Toward godless people? Toward people who are notorious 
for their sin. How do I think of them? How do I regard them? What do I wish for them? It would be good for us to just pause here and ask the question, is my attitude and my approach toward them more in alignment with Jesus' approach here, or is it more in alignment with the scribes and the Pharisees? Or maybe another way of saying it is this, do people who are far from God feel welcomed and wanted in my presence? Or do they feel inferior, judged, condemned, looked down upon? Do they feel wanted? Or do they feel rejected? Are we willing to sit down and share a meal with godless people? People who are known for their sin? Are we willing to do it and be seen doing it? Or do we isolate ourselves from them out of some foolish fear of contamination? I want to suggest to you this morning, right at the outset, before we even get into the parables, that if our heart and our attitude is more aligned with the Pharisees, we're going to see as we walk through these three stories, Jesus stark condemnation of that attitude. And he's going to show in these three stories that that kind of an attitude could not be more opposite the attitude of our God. We are, we are never more unlike God than when we treat godless people that way. And as much as we don't like to think of ourselves as scribes and Pharisees, I suggest that to you that probably if we're honest with ourselves, we're a whole lot more like them than we are like Jesus most of the time. And for that, we need to repent. But Jesus exposes that kind of an attitude here in vivid terms. And he does it with three stories. We'll focus on the first today. He tells the people this parable, verse 3. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, doesn't leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. I love how Jesus speaks in stories that are unmistakable in their meaning. Don't you? He just uses common stories and common images that everybody, no matter how educated or uneducated, would understand and would know. And he tells them in such a compelling way that you're drawn into the story. And the way he does that here, methodologically, is he uses a question. He introduces the first two with a question. Well, he says, what man of you, you being his audience, which of you, if you were a shepherd, which of you, if you were a shepherd who lost his sheep, wouldn't do this? And in the second one, which of you, if you were a woman who'd lost a coin, wouldn't do this? And he immediately puts them into the story where they're having to now consider, what would I do in that situation? They don't, he doesn't allow them to keep it external. And he forces them to make a decision about what they would do. And the answer is very obvious in both stories. 
The first one in the setting is a shepherd, a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. Now, note immediately that Jesus, it's, it's not by mistake that he uses a shepherd as his opening illustration here. Because shepherds were considered to be notorious sinners. They were considered to be liars and thieves. They would have fit in very well with the group that Jesus was dining with. They were another group that the religious leaders of Israel would have absolutely nothing to do with. And the first thing he says was, imagine you're a shepherd. What would you do? Well, you can imagine their response and indignant uh, hearts to even the suggestion that they should consider themselves shepherds. It says, consider you're a shepherd, and you have a hundred sheep. And one of the sheep wanders off and gets lost. Well, that's a problem. If you're a shepherd and you have a hundred sheep and one of them wanders and gets lost, that's a real problem because sheep are safe when they're where? Well, when they're with the flock, right? They're safe when they've got the numbers around them and they've got the shepherds to watch over them. For the most part, sheep are safe. But a sheep that wanders off and is off by itself is completely vulnerable. Completely vulnerable. He will not live long in that condition. There are all sorts of dangers that sheep by themselves run into. Sheep can get into all sorts of trouble. There's the danger of falling over. A sheep can fall over and roll over on its back. It's called a a cast sheep. And it's like the people in those commercials with the emergency button that I used to see on TV all the time. You know, they're falling and they can't get up. They're on their back. The sheep in that condition can become so distressed that it can die literally in that condition, not able to get up in a very short amount of time. But even if he doesn't fall over and end up in that kind of condition, the sheep has a problem. He's got lots of enemies. There's lions and there's coyotes and there's bears and there's wild dogs and there's all sorts of enemies. And he is not equipped to battle any of those creatures. He's a sheep. He's all alone, right? There's safety in numbers. Sheep are equipped to do one thing, to sense predators from a great distance and to run and to regather as a group and to find safety in the group. That's what they do. Out in the middle of a sort of a a pasture, they, they can see a long distance, and they can see predators coming, and a predator has to expose itself to attack. But a sheep off by itself... A sheep that's not in the pasture, a sheep that's off in the the woods that's wandered off is now wandered into enemy territory. He's exposed. He's on the enemy's home turf, if you will, and the predators can hide in their home turf and attack, and he stands really no chance whatsoever. Beyond that, he's not a fighter. Sheep are prey animals, aren't they? They don't have any natural equipment to fight. They don't have sharp teeth. They don't have big claws. They can't bite with poison, right? They can't do anything like that. They have no really natural offensive weapons. They're prey animals. And when attacked by any sort of a predator, they will lose. The sheep in this story is in serious danger. And when the shepherd discovers that he's lost his sheep, that there's a sheep that's missing, he's got a dilemma and he's got a choice to make. And the choice is one of two things. Does he leave the 99 that he has safe and leave them potentially vulnerable to go after the one sheep who's lost? Or does he stay with the 99 and just consider the one sheep that's wandered away part of the cost of doing business? That's the dilemma. If he goes after the one, he might lose more. 
After all, he may be too late to even get to that one. And the cost could be higher. He stays the one who's gone is completely hopeless. Well, this particular shepherd of the story, he goes after the one lost sheep. And everybody who knew, who, who was hearing this story in the first century, would have known that's the right thing to do. Every respectable shepherd would go after the one sheep. Every respectable shepherd would do that. No respectable shepherd would refuse to go after his lost sheep. It was his responsibility to get all of his sheep from the place where he got them to the place where they're going. It was his responsibility to do that. And beyond that, he loved his sheep. He was with them all the time. He knew them. He did not want any one of them becoming prey for predators. He cared about their safety, and he would not stand by, and he would not just watch them die. And so, Jesus says, this shepherd persistently and he patiently pursues that sheep. He walks around. You can just sort of imagine the shepherd putting on his pack and grabbing his staff and going off into the wilderness and leaving the, the rest of the, uh, the flock behind. And he's going through the woods. He has no idea where his sheep is. He's looking everywhere, high and low, calling out that sheep's name. Here, Mikey. I don't know what the sheep's name was. Mikey sounds good. Mikey, where are you? I don't know. Maybe he was just yelling, bah, I don't know. Whatever sheep respond to, I'm the shepherd, I'm you clearly. He did whatever shepherds do to go try and find their sheep. And persistently and patiently, he searches high and low. And the story is very explicit. Jesus says he will not give up, he does not give up until he finds his sheep. He looks until he finds them. And once he finds him, he does everything necessary to get the sheep home safely. It says when he found him, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Once he finds his sheep, he binds up any wounds that the sheep might have, and he picks him up, and he does just like you see in that picture there. Sheep can weigh 75 to 100 pounds, and the shepherd would hoist him up and put him around his neck. And he'd carry that sheep all the way back home. Apart from that shepherd searching for that sheep, apart from that, the sheep can do nothing to rescue itself. He's toast. He was as good as dead. Completely hopeless, completely defenseless, left on his own. But the shepherd finds him. And he binds up his wounds. And he picks him up. And he throws him over his shoulders. And he carries him all the way home. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's a beautiful picture. But that isn't even the best part about it. You might think that having to go through all this would cause the shepherd to be angry with the sheep for wandering. You might imagine him sort of hoisting that sucker up on his shoulders and, and grumbling all the way back home, you stupid sheep, what in the world is your problem? Don't you know you're defenseless? Don't you know that you're going to die out here? What were you thinking wandering off by yourself? If Greg was a shepherd and that was his sheep, that's exactly how the journey home would probably be all the time. And my son in the front row says, amen. You probably heard that, right? The most astounding part of the story is this. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. What's that next word? 
rejoicing. Rejoicing. He's not angry. He's not agitated. He's not cursing the sheep. He's not muttering and mumbling under his breath. He's rejoicing. He is overjoyed that he found the sheep in time. He's elated that he can bring the sheep back home to the flock. And the picture is of this shepherd carrying this 100-pound sheep all the way back, singing along the way, rejoicing. Rejoicing that he was able to save his sheep. And if that isn't enough, we're told that when he gets back to the village, he throws a party off for the sheep. I mean, if that isn't ridiculous, what I, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for, for I found my sheep that was lost. Now, the setting is clearly a small Judean village where everybody knows everybody's business. So people knew, apparently, what was going on. They'd lost his sheep, and they would have been concerned along with him. And so the shepherd is overjoyed. He comes back home singing all the way. He puts the sheep back in with the flock. He calls his friends, and he calls his neighbors, and he throws a party. He breaks out the wine. He lights up a big fire. He cooks up the hors d'oeuvres. He calls Shane the DJ for entertainment, you know, for the party. Speaking to Shane as he's walking in right now. Sorry, Shane, I didn't mean to call you out like that while you were walking. I mean, he throws the party. There's singing and there's dancing and there's community celebration. The lost sheep has been found. He's safely home and everybody is ecstatic. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? But it isn't just a story. It has a point. And Jesus says, here's the point. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And by the way, that last phrase, 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, is pure sarcasm. Because there is nobody who needs no repentance. There are only self-righteous people who think they need no repentance. And that or there's the religious leaders. They were the ones who thought they needed no repentance. Thought that they were holy men. And Jesus tells them this wonderful story about a shepherd who finds his sheep and brings them home and has a party. And then he just sort of jabs the knife into their heart. And he says, here's what you need to know about this story. There is more, there is, there's a party going on in heaven. Every time one sinner, like these ones I'm hanging around, every time one of them repents, heaven throws a party. There's more celebration in that than there is over 99 people like you who think you're holy, but you're not. It's a zinger that both validates his own behavior toward the lost and it exposes the religious leaders for their hypocrisy and their lack of true compassion. Really a stunning thing to say. An offensive thing to say. Intentionally offensive. What are we to take away from the story? Well, there are four things that I think are pretty clear. One of them is the real condition of lost people. Like a lost sheep, lost people are helpless and they're hopeless. 
It's the condition of every single lost sinner that you know today. Every person that you know that flaunts God's law, every person that you know that rebels against their creator, every person that you know who refuses to worship God, who refuses to repent before Jesus Christ and fall before him as Lord and Savior, their condition is every bit like that lost sheep. They are lost and they are helpless and they are hopeless and they cannot save themselves. Left to their own, they will go into an eternity of destruction or they will face the judgment of God on their sin. And by the way, at one time, that was your condition and mine too. Unless God seeks them out, unless God finds them, they're toast. They can't save themselves. They can't find their own way home. They are defenseless against all the enemies of their soul. Their only hope is that God would come to them in the person of Christ and would rescue them from their sin. Their only hope is that God would love them and that God would seek them out, that he would have compassion on their weak and helpless condition, that he would, in mercy, come alongside them and and bind up their wounds and their scars, and he would pick them up and throw them over his shoulder and carry them all the way home. That's the only hope of any lost sinner. It's the only hope. That's the real condition of lost people. And that was your real condition before Christ found you, before he had mercy on you. The other thing we see here is the nature of the religious leaders, at least their true nature. It gets exposed here very, very clearly. They were corrupt shepherds. Just like the religious leaders of Israel's past, these were fake leaders. They were false leaders. They masqueraded as men who loved God, but they loved nobody other than themselves. They were not in it for the ministry. They were in it for the money and for the power and for the prestige. They loved the worship of the people that belonged to God coming to them. They were smug and they were self-righteous. They were merciless. They were compassionless. They cared only about themselves and they despised lost sheep and wanted nothing to do with them. They were perfectly comfortable letting them go out into an eternal hell and they had no conscience about it whatsoever. Thinking they were the most righteous, the most godlike people in their culture, they were in fact 180 degrees opposite the heart of God. They couldn't have been more unlike God than they were. Thinking themselves to be wise, they were fools, and that should be frightening to religious people. That religious people could so confuse themselves, so lie to themselves, so to be so distorted in their thinking that they could fancy themselves right next to God, and in reality, they couldn't be further away. They had such disdain for lost sinners around them. The reality was they were the most lost ones in the whole crowd. They were the furthest from God. Write down in your notes Ezekiel chapter 34, 2 through 16. And go read that later this afternoon when you have some time. And you'll see the prophecy in Ezekiel where God just castigates the religious leaders of Israel in Ezekiel's day. And he says to them, you're fake leaders. You should have been feeding my sheep and you're not. You should have been protecting my sheep and you're not. 
You're getting your own selves fat and you're letting them go into their own destruction. At the end of that passage, he says this, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I will rescue them. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. God says to those fake religious leaders, what you were supposed to do and have refused to do, I'll do it myself. And when we see Jesus saying these words in Luke 15, Jesus is saying to people who knew their Old Testament, you are just like those leaders in Ezekiel's day. And I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. I am the God who's come to do what you should have been doing all along. Because you refuse to go after them, I've come to go after them. Because you refuse to bind them up, I'm here to bind them up. Because you refuse to get them safely home to heaven, I've come to go get them and bring them safely home. You're frauds. And we see the true nature of Jesus too, don't we? Jesus is represented here by the shepherd. He's being accused of pursuing and identifying with lost sinners, and it's an accurate accusation. That's exactly who he is, and it's exactly what he's doing. The difference is, it should be celebrated, not ridiculed. A little later, a couple pages over in your Bible, in chapter 19 of Luke, we're going to read these words from Jesus saying, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He says, you're darn right, that's what I'm doing. You're darn right I'm sitting at a table and eating with sinners and with tax collectors, with lost people. It's the whole reason I came. The whole reason I've come is to do this very thing, to go find people just like this and to redeem them. Jesus is a compassionate and merciful Savior. That's the point, isn't it? He will relentlessly search high and low for his lost sheep, and he won't stop until he finds him. There's no amount of ridicule that's going to stop him from searching and finding lost sinners and saving them. He'll do everything necessary to save them. He'll do everything necessary to get them safely home. He'll do everything necessary to make sure that they spend eternity with him in heaven, not because they're holy enough, not because they're religious enough to earn it, but because he simply picks them up and puts them on his back and carries them through the gate. If you and I ever get to heaven, it'll be because that very thing is the reality of our lives. It won't be because you came to this church. It won't be because you did religious things. And it won't be because you're a good person. It'll be because a merciful, a merciful and compassionate Savior sought you and found you in your hopeless condition. And he bound you up and he loved you and he picked you up and he threw you over his shoulder and he marched you into the kingdom on his credit, not yours. It's the only way in. It's the only way in. And I guess finally we'll say this, and then we'll come back to this theme a good bit later. It's very simply this. The real source of God's joy is the salvation of sinners. That is a theme in every one of these stories that Jesus tells. The theme is rejoicing. The joy of God at the salvation of sinners. What brings joy to the heart of God is not religious people doing religious things. What brings joy to the heart of God, which what causes celebration in heaven, is 
sinners who were far from God being redeemed, being rescued, being brought back into the family, into the fold. Why does God redeem sinners? Because he enjoys it. Because his very nature finds joy in pursuing those who have rebelled and capturing them and loving them and having mercy on them and picking them up and redeeming them and bringing them back home. He, he, there's something about God that finds deep and abiding joy in that activity. That for whom that is cause for celebration. A party gets thrown in heaven every time one sinner repents. Every time one lost sheep is found. Every time one person who's far away from God is brought home. brings deep and abiding joy to the heart of God. What kind of God is that? What God is like that? What God created by men or established by demons or created out of someone's imagination is like that? A God who finds deep and abiding joy in finding the rebels who've run away from him and spurned him bringing them home. There is no God like that. There is no God like that. Except one. The one true living God who comes to us in the person of Jesus and finds great joy in finding lost sinners, forgiving lost sinners, redeeming lost sinners, and bringing them home to be with him forever. Listen, I don't know what your conception is of God this morning. But if these aren't the leading thoughts about him when you think of him, then you've mistaken who he is. You've missed it. He's a God who's merciful and compassionate and who loves you. If you were here this morning and you look at your own self in the mirror and you say, you know what? I can identify with that term sinners because I'm one of them. I look at myself. I know a thousand different ways that I've rebelled against God. And I'm pretty sure he hates me this morning. You need to understand he doesn't hate you. He loves you. And the fact that you're even here hearing this sermon this morning is evidence that he is a shepherd who is pursuing after you his lost sheep. He wants you to come home. And he's coming after you. There's no need to run because he's a compassionate and merciful Savior. He's not going to throw your sins in your face and scold you. He simply says, repent and turn toward me. I'll pick you up and take you home. And I'll rejoice in doing it. You'll make my day. That is our God. Why would you run from him? Why would you not run to him this morning? If you don't know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, run to him today and find a shepherd with open arms. There's no one like him. No one. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, your words are so simple and yet so profound. You tell a simple story that has life-changing implications. And when you do it, you show us who you are. And we see you this morning from your very word as a merciful and compassionate Savior. The one who finds deep joy and delight in pursuing 
lost people. We confess our sin before you, that our lives as your followers do not always reflect that attitude. And for that, Lord, we come before you in repentance. We're sorry that we don't treat people the way you do. That we don't engage people who are far from you the way we ought to. That quite often we're judgmental and we lack compassion. Quite frequently we avoid lost people and treat them like they have a plague. Quite frequently they don't feel wanted and welcomed in our presence. And we see from your word this morning that that is not a reflection of your heart. It's a reflection of our pride and our haughtiness. So forgive us. Replace our compassionless heart with hearts of compassion for the lost. Lord Jesus, you've died and you've been buried and you've been raised for our salvation. You've ascended into heaven where you sit right now awaiting your return. You can't physically sit at a table and dine with lost sinners. Except as you do it through us. Lord, give us a heart to want what you want, to rejoice at what you rejoice at. Apart from your work in our hearts, we'll never be that. We'll never do that. And Lord Jesus, as we even now approach this table and prepare to remember your death, burial, and resurrection, we're reminded the writer of Hebrews that says that it was for the joy set before you that you endured the cross and all of its shame. That even in your dying and your bleeding, you did it for the joy of redeeming lost sheep like us. Lord, may these truths about you just resonate in our heart as we share this meal together. May we be renewed and refreshed in our understanding of who you are and what you've done for us and what you've called us to do. May this supper that we share together be transformative for us in that way, that we walk away more loving you, more acting like you, more committed to finding joy in the things that you find joy in. Forgive us for our sin, Lord, we pray. Meet us in this meal for your sake and your glory. Amen.